you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. It has always been a mystery why the CIA, which had a growing file on Oswald, maintains it never talked to him. One former CIA officer, however, says he read an agency debriefing of Oswald in 1962. Donald Densleya still does undercover work, but agreed to be interviewed in shadow. I received across my desk a debriefing report. It was a re- debriefing of a marine redefector. He was returning with his family from the Soviet Union and was back in the United States. The report was approximately four to five pages in length. It gave a lot of details about the organization of the Minsk radio plant. It was signed off by a CIA officer by the name of Anderson. Frontline showed the document to former director Helms. I know of no contact that was made by CIA with Oswald when he returned to the United States. There may have been one, but I'm not aware of it, and I'm not able to shed any light on who it would have been. And this document doesn't change your mind? And that document doesn't change my mind in the slightest. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode 115 of the Lone Gummin Podcast, and I got a great show lined up for you today. And joining me back on the show is my friend Bart Camp from Dealer Plaza UK, the ROKC Forum, and prayer-man.com. What is up, Bart? Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me again on the show, Bob. It's, it's oh, a no pleasure. Problem. Hey, look, our last show we did together is like seriously like two listens away from a thousand. And it's that's insane. It's definitely the best. Yeah, it is. The most listened to show so far ever. So it's amazing. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening, actually. So, you know, they make the show they that do. popular. So thanks to them. 
Yeah, no doubt. Well, it's, you know, it's a fascinating subject and I encourage everybody to go back and listen to it. If you haven't checked it out already, it's all about prayer, man. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But before we do, um, Dealer Plaza UK had a, uh, had a conference recently and that's correct. Yeah. And Bart, Bart uh, did a presentation there as well as other folks, yeah. Greg Parker and, yeah. uh, you know, several other folks. And, uh, yeah. also got a chance to interview some very interesting people, which we're going to play on the show for you today. Uh, one with Malcolm Blunt, uh, yeah. you know, an old school researcher and, uh, you know, glean some interesting stuff from him. So, so Bart, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, about this, about this conference that you attended and, and gave a presentation yeah. at. My pleasure. Um, the conference itself was, uh, it's, they get the most of the people, the members getting together on Friday afternoon where uh, they all go to the pub. Um, I didn't join until Saturday morning. Um, so I got up at five, got on the train and uh, it's in Canterbury, which is south of London. And uh, for those who don't know, Canterbury is a, uh, is a, is a city filled with history. Um, there's quite a bit of architecture left from the 1500s, 1600s, or even the 1400s, I think. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. I was in a hotel that was right next to what called the Canterbury Gate, which actually leads to the Canterbury Cathedral. And the conference started on Saturday morning. And I was the second speaker. Uh, the first speaker was Alaric Rossman, who did a thing on the rifle about the confusion regarding the rifle, regarding uh, the Mauser and the Malik of Carcano and how long it took for Dallas police to actually rectify the matter. Now, whether it was a Mauser and, or a Carcano or a Lee Enfield, um, I'll leave all that up to the specialists to debate. Um, I know only a small bit about it. Then I did uh, I did two hour sessions. I did the first bit spoke about the films and the pictures that pointed up and and the people at the Texas School Book Depository just after the shooting of JFK, and then that basically extended into the certain individuals of the Texas School Book Depository. So I ended up talking about Shelley Fraser. Love Lady, uh, Molina, uh, and then I also went upstairs to the fourth floor of Victoria Adams and Sarah Stanton and see Dorman, Donna, and I did a little bit on the fifth floor boys, uh, Jarman, Norman, and uh, uh, Ray Williams. And uh, the problem was that I repeated pretty much what I did in the movie, but I added quite a bit of content on it, mm-hmm. uh, extra added it on it. And basically that put me in a, in a bit of a predicament because, um, uh, for those who don't know, I did the whole movie that I put on was, that I had half of the time allocated for half of the subject for, for, for the content. So I really had to cram it in there. And that meant, that uh, I had to leave out a few really important things. Then we went for lunch. <clears throat> we went to the pub, and uh, that was really good. And uh, <laughs> and um, we I we continued with the interrogations of Oswald. But uh, just before that, I basically destroyed 
completely destroyed the second floor lunchroom encounter. Um, I already did that in the movie, but I added another four or five slides to what I already had originally in there. So it went from a second floor lunchroom encounter to a second floor lunchroom encounter that never existed to there never was a second floor lunchroom in the Texas School Book Depository. Uh, that's just a joke, but basically with stating all the newspaper uh, articles, um, the reports, um, and, and the uh, actual witness testimony, um, it never happened, basically. And the problem is now, even by going through all the the, the uh, testimony of the of people like Shelley and Lovelady and uh, Melina, is that, uh, and the women as well, uh, is that a lot of them just lied through their teeth, absolutely just start, uh, twisted lots of things. I'll uh, I'll give you a really nice example. It's actually this morning I found out that's about uh, uh, Mrs. Robert Reed and uh, Pauline Sanders. Now, for those that don't know, Mrs. Robert Reed basically helped uh, Truly and Baker nail Oswald by um, saying that she encountered Oswald just after the so-called lunchroom encounter. But she made quite a few mistakes. One of them was that she said that Oswald was wearing a T-shirt, whereas Baker said that Oswald was wearing long sleeves. On top of that, neither truly nor, nor Baker actually stated that he had a Coke in his hands. Um, they did make that mistake in writing, but every time they rectified that, whereas Reed said he had a Coke in his right hand. Um, the... The thing is, Reed was working for Truly, and Pauline Sanders was working for Truly as well. Now, Sanders is the only person on the steps. She she said she stood on the top step next to Molina, uh, although she cannot be recognized in either the Darnell or the Wiegmann film. But Sanders is the only person that actually stated that, that she saw Baker go up those stairs with Truly in there. Whereas this testimony of Frazier and Molina saying they only saw Truly by himself going in there. Hmm. About a week or so ago at the Education Forum, uh, Chris Davidson posted some gifts, Sandy Larson as well. And in that GIF, which is something that I never saw before, but it's just because they slowed it down to such an extent, you can actually see that Baker isn't going straight for the steps. He's actually going past it. Now, the thread is called the, uh, something along the lines that it was Baker going for the Dell Tex building. Uh, I personally don't believe that. I've got more of an inkling that Baker went to the corner of the Texas School Book Depository and actually had a quick peek up on the fire escape, whether somebody from the sixth floor, which is logical, actually, uh, whether somebody would actually try and get down those steps because they were just on the outside. So if somebody wanted to make a quick escape, then they would use those fire the fire escape on the side of the building. Yeah, that's the, that's a little interesting um, nugget. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's that the particular GIF is uh, kind of cool because they go backwards and forwards with Baker, and you can just see at the angle that he's going past those steps. He's not going towards the steps at all. The problem is that when you watch the movie at normal speed, you don't really see it, and you just automatically assume that he's actually going to those front steps. So I thought, ah, oh, that's a really interesting find. And, uh, yeah. you know, every week or every couple of weeks, there is something coming up and you go, hold on a minute. I never thought of that. Um, this morning, 
there. Um, now, what are the odds on this? I'll ask you and the listeners. All right. Um, Reed and Sanders, which I just mentioned, both worked for Truly, and Reed was a supervisor. Now, bo- both Reed and Sanders say something that uh, corresponds with each other. Basically, they said both of them had a conversation with Ovi Campbell, who was the vice president of the Texas School Book Depository, where they basically talk about the directions of the shots. Both women claim that the shots came from above them, whereas they say that when they had the conversation with Campbell, that Campbell says, no, they came from further down the street or the grassy area. Now, so when I read that at first, I thought, hold on a minute, that's a little bit too coincidental because both work for the company under Truly. Truly works under Campbell. So I started looking into this this morning. And basically what it actually amounts to is this. In the original written statement from Mrs. Robert Reed, says it says literally, I remarked to Mr. Campbell, who was standing nearby, that I thought that the shots had come from our building. But I heard someone else say, no, I think it was further down the street. Now, in the FBI affidavit on November the 26th, the, actually the handwritten affidavit of her was on November 23, in the FBI affidavit of November 26th, there is no, no mention of this conversation at all, nor is there any mention in the Secret Service report of December the 4th. But when it's time for the testimony in front of the Warren Commission, the bit of someone else who replied to her is actually being changed into O.B. Campbell instead. And Pauline Sanders makes mention of the O.V. Campbell conversation on the November 24th in her FBI statement. And she does not repeat it anywhere else, nor does she get called up to testify. All right? Right. So it's all a bit iffy because, first of all, Reed says that somebody else actually replied. She asked a question to Campbell, but somebody else replied to her and said, no, it's further down the street. By the time it's at the Warren Commission, she, she actually turns that someone else into O.V. Campbell. Pauline Sanders does the same thing. The other thing is that's really iffy is that Sanders, on the second page of her FBI statement, there is a whole telephone conversation that she actually has with Reed. And basically, there's a half a page of hearsay. A truckload of hearsay is basically being delayed with regards to Oswald's so-called counsel with Reed in the second floor office. So, and then the whole thing is basically jotted down in support of that so-called second floor lunchroom encounter. It just doesn't add up. And the things are being changed a little bit too easy. Um, that's one of the finds from this morning. Uh, we managed to get hold of uh, Molina's HSCA testimony. I'm still going through that. There's, uh, again, there's a lot of talk with Molina about the GI forum. William Lowry as well, major person of interest. I'm still looking for the Dallas Morning News article where Lowry was exposed, which was actually just before the assassination. Love to get a hold of that. And now, who was this um, guy? Who was this guy, Lowry? William Lowry was actually uh, okay. What it was is that um, uh, Joe Molina was part of a uh, of a an organization called the GI Forum, and the GI Forum were basically uh, Hispanic ex-military or ex-navy people and it was more about human rights they tried to bury their people in a 
I forgot the name, a specific cemetery in, in, in Dallas. And uh, they weren't allowed because of their uh, heritage. Mm-hmm. And because, um, you know, racing back then. You know, yeah. um, so they or they put that organization together to for more to get more civil rights. And that was regarded as pretty subversive by the Dallas police. And they actually uh, investigated them. What was more important was that William Lowry was part of that organization and he was an FBI informant and he basically informed on everyone to the F, uh, about the people in the GI forum to the FBI. Now, they also know that the Communist Party tried to uh, get members. So they uh, tried to uh, get Molina to become a member for the Communist Party, but he always refused. When you um, dig into the document, uh, well, Molina basically gets, uh, they knock on Molina's door at one o'clock in the morning uh, after the assassination. And they've got a so-called John Doe warrant, but they don't have to exercise that because Molina says, come on in. So he lets them in and they basically go through his house for about two or three hours. They don't find anything. They take a letter with him where um, where his wife um addresses somebody like dearest comadre and they take that as comrade like communist and they take that letter with them and it's got some names on it but other than that they've got absolutely nothing and of course that letter's got no bearing on communist literature whatsoever but he's basically a marked man at that point he has to come into the dallas police station on the 23rd and he goes there at 10 o'clock and he's been given the runaround he's been they put him down sit down you can't go anywhere blah 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 he's there till five o'clock in the meantime during those hours while he's there and just answers every question they asked him jesse curry can't keep his mouth shut and basically exposes him as a subversive there's um i think on my prayer man side i think it's on the uh, joe Molina page there's a video of jesse curry where he basically starts blabbing about it and names him as well and the press knows about this as well so his name is basically beamed across the world as a potential subversive. And that basically puts his job at risk. Molina gets let go within a month after the assassination. They'll give him three months pay, three months half pay, a Christmas bonus, see you later. Hmm. Um, this was all done under the excuse of uh, they were autom- automating uh, the uh, processes uh, in the in the accounting department as such, whereas Otis Williams, who was his, it was his co-employee in that department, was older and was closer to retirement. It would have made more more sense. It would have been more logical to actually let Williams go than instead of Molina. But then the um, the the phone calls and the letters started coming in and yeah. say, "I'm not Negative buying press. any." I'm not buying any, uh, because of the press, I'm not buying any books from you as long as you've got a communist sympathizer amongst you, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so the whole thing, the second, you know, there's a whiff of communism around it. It's no different than now if you say, like, well, this guy is working for you and he's got, uh, they say he's been in an ISIS uh, training camp as such. Right. You know, you get the same uh, smudge as such. so, yeah, we've got finally we've got this HSCA testimony, which is kind of cool. Uh, still got to go through it. It's going to be used for the next movie and it's going to be published at ROKC at some point. Then the other thing that we uh, that I just dis- partially discovered because 
the beauty is that I end up going back to the old RKC forum a lot. It's a really good source. There's some really good posts there by Lee Farley, by Greg Parker, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Aldo Rossi, there's, there's, there's really good stuff there. And one of the things that I found out was that, well, as you know, in the original um, original notes of um, of the second floor lunchroom encounter, it's that Truly is going ahead of Baker, which never made any sense to me. Because why would you go upstairs with a guy with a gun behind you, possibly facing a shooter coming down from the sixth floor? Yeah. And you'd be in a crossfire as such. So that would never, you know, that from the work get go, I always questioned that. And what happened uh, next was that I came across a little post where there was a mention of where um, they, they said, like, um, we found this report from Leo Savage. And then Leo Savage, who did an interview with Roy Truly in March 64. I'll give you a little quote here. And he says, I thought the officer wanted to get to the roof or for a better look. And I immediately offered to show him how. We ran to the freight elevators in the back of the building because the front elevators do not go beyond the fourth floor. But the two freight cars had both been left somewhere up in the top floors and we took the stairs. The officer ahead of me. When I reached the second floor landing, the officer was already at the open door of the lunchroom some 20 or 25 feet away. No, I couldn't tell you, sorry, no, I couldn't tell you exactly how much time it took all this, but it wasn't long. So in March of 64, he actually says that Blaker is running ahead of him. Now, I thought that's a quite, quite an interesting statement to make. But the funny thing is then I started looking and I found and the Leo Savage thing is from March. And it was actually reprinted in a, in a newspaper called The National Guardian. And that was quite a leftist paper. But then I find a copy of the Detroit Free Press of December the 7th in 1963, where in a different interview, truly, again, says that Baker walks ahead of him. So I thought, oh, that's two sources. But then I found a third source, and that's called the New York Journal American of May 24th, 1964. So we're talking December 63, March 64, and May 64, on three occasions where basically truly says that Baker walked ahead of him. So I thought that's quite quite surprising to read yeah. um, and the, the contradiction of it as such. But also it is logical, much more, it makes much more sense than him walking ahead of Baker. Well, yeah. Um, so, Dad, so it's an interesting thing. If you want to read about this and see the articles, you just go to the RKC forum and there's a thread called Ahead of Me. Um, then we, I managed to find I knew about this already about a year ago, but I never got any physical material about this. And this is on the, we found a name, we found the material of, I found the material of a uh, Canadian researcher who used to correspond with uh, Harold Weisberg and with Richard E. Sprague a lot. I'm not going to divulge his name yet because I'm waiting for some more stuff to come and then there's going to be an article about it. But the bottom line is, is that he only had Wiegmann and Algins and Hughes. He didn't have Donnell or, or, or Couch as such. Right. And um, from what I gather, he basically managed to get a fairly decent copy of 
Wiegmann and had a really good look at it and basically sees Prayer Man. Now, they are still talking about the whole Dorman love lady thing, etc., etc. And they're juggling about who's who. But the fact is that he recognizes him, but he also makes sketches of him. And the sketches, I've got them, and they're very good, actually. Now, they'll come out in due course. I'm going to use them in a new movie as well. So, um, And I'm waiting for some more material. And once I've got that, there's going to be a big piece on my, uh, on my website. Now, speaking of the movies, I'm going to make an attempt to start in about two or three weeks. There's going to be four maybe five movies and at first i thought i was going to do them in 25 minute segments but the second floor lunchroom encounter is going to take me at least 40 to 45 minutes and the thing with the the people in the texas school book depository uh same thing and um, the movie material probably last half an hour and uh, you know, so overall, everything is going to be between a minimum a half an hour to maximum 45 minutes at least. So it's going to be a long thing, but it, at least I'm going to break it in four or five bits as such. So, and they'll start coming out probably by the end of May, early June, and then gradually get released over the months, June, July. And then I'm going to take a break from it for a bit because <laughs> it's been a bit full on. <laughs> um, getting back to Canterbury. Uh, the uh, so I did a two-hour talk and that was uh, really good. It, I used it as training. It's the only video I'm not showing. All the other videos have been put on YouTube. Um, I used it as training for to see um, how I would get along uh, with the new material and um, how long it would uh, how long it would actually be itself. And I uh, just learned a few little bits and um, it made me even more realize that I had to break uh, the movie uh, in four bits, in four parts, because otherwise it would have now it probably would become two to two and a half hours, way too long. Yeah. And so I thought, OK, chop it up. And um, so and because the movie's coming out in about a month's time, I just left the uh, left the uh, left the, the, the talk itself, left that off. Um, the after me came on Larry Hancock. Um, he did a really good talk regarding uh, the security and um, that was uh, national security events compared between uh, the response between uh, November 22nd and he compared it with the Reagan shooting or 9-11 and uh, uh, it was really interesting because he just looked at the bigger picture. It's more from a historic perspective and uh, um, it, it was, yeah, it was good listening to. Um, the only problem I have was that uh, we were just staring at a few pages of some text uh, with a bunch of bullet points on it. Yeah. So that can be a bit testing. And also his talk was, uh, I'd say, about an hour and a half long. So it was, uh, you know, especially with the old guys, it's uh, hard to uh, stay focused on that. But uh, no, I thought it was very good. And that was followed up by um, a speak speech by... Paul Brown, and he did a second part. He did uh, his first part last year, and that's called Fingerprints of Intelligence. And, you know, you're talking about the Morn Shields, you're talking about the pains yeah. uh, and all that connection between Oswald and them. So, yeah, that's that's always good to listen to. And, and he just did it really in a rather speedy way. And the video um, will tell you that as well. Then uh, we had dinner. And this is where I finally had a chance to sit down with Malcolm Blunt. And that was really good. I sat next to him uh, on uh, at the at the table, 
and discussed uh, quite a few bits. And uh, it's just a real joy to uh, talk to him. And I was really looking forward to moderating the talk with him as well the next day. Uh, during dinner, we talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, he told me that this is something I just didn't know, but, but probably a lot of listeners will know. is the fact that Building 7 contained a lot of JFK records. Oh, I didn't really? know that. No, I didn't. Yeah, so they were all destroyed. Yeah. And um, so for those that don't know, and I mean, during the interview, you'll hear this yourself. It basically is that Blunt basically worked with John Armstrong uh, on a project called Project Oswald. It was never called Harvey and Lee then. And um, he did that for about five years. And then after that, he basically gone into really deep CIA research. And I'm talking really deep CIA research, you know, and uh, it's amazing what he uh, digs up as such. He goes to, he used to have a flat right, right nearby Nara itself. He started there 20 years ago. Yeah. When you can spend, you know, six, six, six months at Nara. You're, you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He just sits in there and just basically, uh, you're going to find he also something. has a d different technique. You know, we gone to Nara and we look for something specific and he does it as well. But the difference is that whatever he gets his hands on he just has it all scanned in he doesn't go through documents and say like oh i want this or i want that he'll probably just look at the cover sheet and say yeah i'll have that and you know whether whatever you know if it's the, the subject is uh, sr10 then he'll just basically just gets everything that's involved in it and worries about the content when he actually gets back home he just comes back home with a truckload of pdfs and then goes through it and says yeah all right and then starts making sense of it all instead of wasting time inside nara as such, I think that's quite a good thing. Right? What he mostly yeah. uh, during dinner talked about were things like um, how 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 documents disappear. And you know, this is a really simple question for all the nay naysayers. It's like if 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 Oswald is the guy who did it as such. Well, besides like, well, why is he linked to so much intelligence? But why does all this stuff disappear? He's got a great story about um, the Marine Corps interviews. There was about 100 Marines that were interviewed and he had lots of trouble getting access to it. You know, he had to go back and forth, phone calls, this, that and the other. And when they finally gave him permission, they got the case out and it was all sealed up and it was all covered in dust, stuff like that. And then they opened it up and half the box was empty and all the Marine Corps interviews all had disappeared. You know, it's the same with the Minox camera. You can't open it. It's been glued shut with whatever cement or glue they used nobody can open it and basically can compare the internals like the serial number and so forth for that it's, it's impossible to open it up yeah, that's a little um, so yeah sorry i was saying yeah that's a little sketchy yeah that yeah well, coincidence we kept i kept saying that during the interview there's quite a few coincidences happening here um so yeah dinner was really good and then the next day we started uh, with barry Keane. barry Keane did an address about the memory of john f kennedy that was really good it's about a 10 minutes talk and a nice uh, fitting slideshow with it and then afterwards uh, we had the auction and what people do is that uh, there's an auction obviously and uh, what people bring in coins movies books uh, they don't want anymore and all the money goes to the actual uh, organization dealey plaza uk um, 
that is mostly used for uh, rental of equipment or uh, printing costs. And, uh, you know, because uh, the, the funny thing is that uh, even though we live in a digital world, we still get two copies of the Daily Plaza UK journal uh, sent to our mailboxes uh, each year. So, and it's kind of cool because there's always uh, decent articles in there. And, uh, and again, the, the older generation, which I'm part of now as well, because I'm almost 50. So, uh, they like to have a physical uh, copy in their hands instead of just reading of a Kindle or a tablet as such. Uh, I yeah, myself well, that's uh, don't nice. like. Yeah, I myself, you know, I can read off a screen for about an hour or so, and then after that, I have to walk away from it, especially when you have to read a book as such. And after Barry Keane, we had Greg Parker. He made a movie for us and discussed uh, Lee Harvey, Lily Harvey Oswald's Cold War. That's a good little movie. Lasted about 35 minutes. And then after that, we all got together and basically got a bunch of questions and called him up. And uh, the good thing about it is that we were at Christchurch University in Canterbury and they had a very good audio system in the auditorium. So they had speakers in the ceiling. So it was crystal clear. So that was really good. Uh, that's one of the main things with uh, these uh, seminars conferences is the audio it has to be good yeah and uh yeah luckily that was the case so that was really cool and then after that i had my talk with malcolm which you're going to hear and uh that was about an hour's worth close to that and it was really interesting uh we um i know alan dale does does some really good conversations with him and they're more more deep than what we did. Uh, I've only did about half of that. The other half was a bit more straightforward. Uh, a few were loaded questions, uh, very a bit ambiguous, and just basically let him do the talking about it. Um, but I thought the mix was good. Um, I hope to talk to him again next year. Uh, it would be a total, total privilege to do so, and then probably go a little bit more deeper in things. Um, this man has so much knowledge it's uh, it's insane and uh, there's only one of the very few people who uh, just keeps going Benara over and over again and you know he, he knows these people as well and, and he's quite a cool customer, he's really calm and that works in, to his advantage because he also keeps telling stories of uh, how uh, certain uh, American uh, researchers, uh, when they find out that a box is empty, completely lose their cool and have a go at the staff at NARA as such. Right. And the thing is, like, yeah, although you're entitled to get angry about it, but you're talking to the wrong guy because he's just the person who actually picks these boxes up and does the search for you because it's quite a convoluted thing. It's not like, it's not as uh, uh, straightforward as a lot of people think uh, when you go to NARA and say, like, well, uh, uh, here are the numbers, um, go get this for me because uh, they ba you basically put your stuff forward. They then actually go sit behind a computer and look it up and then at s uh, set times in the morning and in the afternoon, they go into the areas as such and pick up these boxes and then bring them down for you to look at. It's uh, so a really slow grinding process uh, to go through. And he's one of the most experienced ones to deal with it as such. But uh, yeah, it was really good. And 
yeah, it's the best thing I've done so far, actually. It also got me more interested into this whole deep CIA thing. Um, I might might start digging into that later this summer, uh, just, to, just to change direction for a while. Um, then uh, after that, uh, we had... Uh, we have Bill Beadle, and Bill Beadle actually uh, is part of two groups. Number one, he's part of the Plaza UK, but he's also part of the Whitechapel Society, and they are actually looking a lot into the Jack the Ripper type thing and that era around it. But what he did actually, he looked into presidential assassinations overall. Now, apparently, there were 13 attempts. And he basically spoke about four of them. And it was really interesting as well. Uh, just the fact that it wasn't just solely JFK. Uh, he just basically uh, uh, pointed out like uh, bits that overlapped on uh, in certain assassinations and the bits that were farther apart. Uh, overall, it was just a really good talk. Uh, I just suggest you just watch the video as such while he just basically talks through it. It was really good. And then after that was um, Gene Shields. Gene Shields has done quite a few uh, talks for uh, Dealey Plaza UK. And uh, it was called Friends and Family. Exactly like that. Uh, within the assassination as such. Um, that was a good talk as well. It was just uh, refreshing. Um, like I said, the same thing with Bill Beatles. It's just the fact that they just go, instead of going through the usual motions of the rifle order, this, that, and the other. You know, that's been done to death as such. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of cool. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the conference went went by really quick. It was just like, uh, oh, is that it? Because on Sunday, it, I think it stopped around 4 o'clock or 4.30, whereas we stopped at 5.30 the day before that. And, uh, yeah, it was just over rather quick. I mean, I was home by about 8 o'clock in the evening, and I spoke to a few the next day, and everybody says I've got withdrawals. So, uh, and I was like, yeah, was, everybody had a really good time. And uh, to all the listeners uh, that are in the UK, if you're interested in uh, joining us, then uh, I suggest you go to uh, dealyplaza.org.uk, and um, there's uh, info there to how to join. Contact info as well, obviously. And uh, the thing is, we don't do just the seminar in Canterbury. We go a lot of mini seminars as well. So every two months, we've got uh, a seminar. We do quite a few in London. As far as I know, we've got one in May and one in July in London. And we've got one in Derby, which is up north near Nottingham. And we've got one lined up possibly in Birmingham I'm not that's not been confirmed yet but um, again you can just uh, contact uh, through the website and find out about it membership is 18 pounds so but we've got American members as well because they like to have the magazine so 18 pounds is roughly about 27 dollars for a year subscription um, so but it's good fun you know just get together with like-minded people and even on the smaller seminars we always have about 15 our people that sit in the pub and uh, you know it's just burgers and beers and uh, and talk for five or six hours whereas the uh, seminars uh, outside of london they last 
uh, most of the time a full day. So they start at 10 o'clock and they finish at five. So, you know, now that so, sounds like a fun time. So it's, yeah, it is. And it's really, you know, it's active, you know, it's just like once a year, it's just not enough. I mean, Canterbury is, is, is great. They've done it there 14 times in a row there now. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really solid. And, um, the mini seminars itself as well. I mean, I, I go to the London ones, the only ones I miss are the ones near the new year. They always do one just before New Year's Eve. I miss that one because I'm always abroad. But uh, other than that, I try to do that. And uh, I'll probably go to the one in Derby as well. Because the thing is also, if you go to outside of London, you just get to see different faces because not everybody wants to go on a train for three or four hours just to come down to London as such. So, but uh, yeah, no, it's great fun. And, uh, you know, if you just want to have a good chat with like-minded people on this whole case and discuss things, then uh, yeah, it's a great place to go to as such. Yeah. Especially, especially some of the younger people. I know I got a lot of listeners over in the UK and, and in England and specifically, and yeah, <clears throat> you know, I, I'd, I'd highly recommend checking it out. Cause you know, a lot of, there's a lot of guys with a lot of knowledge there and you can learn yeah. a lot of stuff and yeah. you know breathe new life into things too you know yeah, that, that too and uh, this this is the thing as well i found out because prayer man was a uh, was an alien thing to them you know uh that in, because here's the thing with prayer man a lot a lot of people judge prayer man on the photograph but they've got it wrong the photograph teaches you to look at the event and the testimony in a different way that's what you've got to do because the thing is if it says if you think oswald was standing on those steps on that landing even though everybody said he wasn't yeah because that's another thing molina said he wasn't there fraser said he wasn't there you know even though if they all say he wasn't that if you just think because there is no candidate. There's no male candidate for that for that person to be there. And there's no female candidate either. Although, like Jim Eugenio said, if that's a female, then I don't know what. Because his sister, he said his sister was doing, um, I think, something with uh, powerlifting or some sort. And uh, she was taking steroids. And she wouldn't even get arms, for, uh, lower arms like Freya Man had. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is a guy. And um, but the, the 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 fact of the matter is is that you basically have to look the other way and basically said okay what is there actually to support the fact that Oswald was on the first floor because in the sixties they were already saying that Oswald said he was on the first floor the really good researchers they made mention of this already what they didn't make mention of is the accessibility to all the documentation that what we've got now which is tenfold of what they had back then. And then, or even more, if you go through all the CIA stuff, but if you just look at it to relate it to the Texas School Book Depository and the statements everybody made, and if you look at it, all that, then you just have um, so much stuff that basically points to, A, the second floor lunchroom account that didn't happen. B, Oswald got stopped on the first floor by Baker. And that, he was out front with Bill Shelley. Out with Bill Shelley in front. That's what he said. That's literally what he said to Fritz. Um, you know, and by looking at and the other way, then you can only come to one conclusion that he was standing there. 
And yeah, a lot of people say, but the picture is too fuzzy, this and the other. And I go, yeah, well, you're preaching to the choir here. And we're working hard on uh, trying to get a better copy. Uh, this is another thing. I might get my hands on uh, another Wiegmann copy in the next week or so. If that's the case, then I'll put it online uh, right away, of course. Um, I just don't know what type of quality um, it is. The copy we got so far was from the Richard Sprague collection. And I'm not sure whether this copy comes from the Richard Spray collection as well. Um, I have to say that the, the ones that we got from the Richard Spray collection at NARA, they were, uh, they were duplicate negatives and they weren't of the greatest quality. They were big, bigger than the actual 16 millimeter film, but the quality itself was okay. It's still better than what is being shown through the Groden film and so forth. Yeah. But, um, uh, I hope that this this copy that we're uh, I'm trying to get hold of uh, is of better quality, but we'll see. You know, we know that the film is at NBC. NBC has acknowledged it, but they won't give it out. Same with the Darnell film. They've got it. They've got the originals because that's the thing as well. They always kept stum about it, but they basically uh, we've got it through correspondence from somebody who worked at NBC and basically said that the powers that be will not allow the films to be scanned in. So hmm. that's enough for us. We also know that the Sixth Floor Museum has a first-generation copy. And this is the actual copy that was used in the Oliver Stone documentary. Uh, what is it called? Uh, Beyond JFK, The Question of Conspiracy. And there's another story behind that, which I really like to find out, because how did they get hold of it? And um, why did they use it? And I think that uh, I think Gary Mack has got something to do with it yeah. because he had a first generation copy and basically offered it to Stone for, to use in the documentary because it wasn't seen anywhere else before. That's the thing because I I didn't see that bit of movie until nine well ninety four because I bought it as part of a uh, uh, a, a duo VHS uh, cassette tape uh, so. Tape one was the Oliver Stone movie, JFK the movie, and uh, the second tape was the uh, documentary that came with it. And in that bit, uh, I remember seeing that it's after about it's. I think the movie th that documentary is on YouTube. After about twenty one minutes or twenty two minutes, something like that, you see the segment of Baker running towards uh, the uh, Texas School Book Depository front steps. That's what we thought. Um, that's the first time I actually saw it. So. Sixth Floor Museum has had that film in its in its in its pocket, in its archives for more than twenty years. And um, Gary Mack, I've got uh, I've got an email from Gary Mack, and I've got a private message from Gary Mack sent to two different people. One is uh, Darren Hastings, and the other one is Vanessa Lo Looney. And they basically uh, both state that uh, they've got, in in both he states that they have a first generation copy, but that due to copyright, hoo-ha, they can't do, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. But he said it was going to happen rather sooner than later. This was March and uh, May last year. And then it went quiet, of course, because he passed away. So uh, I don't think he corresponded a lot in June because I think he passed away in July, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, I figured copyright laws only last, like, what, 50 years or is it 75? When... Really? Yeah, the thing is, we're trying to get hold of it and get really good scans made. But you see, that's the problem by getting them to take it out of the safe and that person to travel. Because uh, there aren't very 
many facilities around that are able to scan this stuff in because you know a, i've got a film scanner myself but that works on strips you know not a, a, a roll of roll of uh, a reel of film as such so um that's that's the issue the uh, you need quite a big machine for that where um, you know one end you have that reel basically being fed into the machine and it just scans each of these frames in one by one um you know I'd be surprised if there'd be more than 10 of these in, 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 in the United States. So, um, you know, you have to travel for that, for have that done yeah. on top of that, it's costly, you know, but I already said, like, if I find some, uh, if I, if I had somebody who said like, well, we'll do it, but you have to pay for it. You know, how long would you reckon it will take with a Kickstarter campaign to basically point that out and just get yeah, not 20 very long. grand together. Yeah. I don't think it will take long. I think 20 grand would easily be, uh, got together as such. I don't think oh yeah so so that's pretty much what i've got to say regarding the pm matter so far um we've got some other things we've got some other irons in the fire but it's a little bit too early to tell uh, we're waiting for more testimony and uh we've got more stuff coming but uh you know it pro- it just progresses slowly on a week by week basis and uh but uh yeah it's good it's progressing slowly Cool. Well, sounds good. I mean, you know, it's a lot of good stuff happening over there. And, uh, you know, I think uh, before we play the the Malcolm Blunt interview, Bart, you know, I think it is time for everybody's newest favorite segment. And it wouldn't go well unless I had some kind of a uh, technical difficulty playing this audio. But I'm going to try again. It is time for... Ridiculousness of the week. That's right. <laughs> it's time for ridiculousness of the week, people. And uh, I know we skipped it last week because of the Keith Gilbert interview. So this this week, you know, Bart, um, you know, there's some some big tabloid news going on over here. I touched on it a couple weeks ago. You know, with this whole Ted Cruz's dad thing. Oh. Uh, you know, I don't know. That uh, smells like Roger no, we, Stone. You know, we have Facebook too. We see all everybody posting yeah. stuff, and uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Morley did a piece on it, and uh, you know, yeah. Well, just when it you think ridiculous. that it can't get more ridiculous than that, it does, because somebody sent me a behind-the-scenes email from one Ralph Sinkay. Oh gosh, here we yeah. go. Here we go. So for those of you, uh, you know, out there who follow what, you know, like I said, you know, stuff on Facebook and, and things like this, you know that Ralph has, has found someone in the crowd on Main Street uh, who he's now calling Rafael Cruz as well in Dallas. Okay. But that's not all. That's not all. He compares him. He compares him, you know, to the, uh, a college photo, I think, uh, of Rafael Cruz. And and to me, to my eyes, you know, it's just not the same person. The ears are the ears are different. You know, it, it's it's that simple. You know, you know the problem with Shinky is, is that whatever he does, it doesn't lead to an answer. Here's the thing with Prayer Man, for instance, and he tries to ridicule that, but he's been on this doorman thing for <laughs> years, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But the photo's fake, and it's Oswald, and this, that, and the other, and him, and Larry Rivera, etc., etc., uh, with the pictures and all that. 
none of it leads to a conclusion. Now, the only reason why I'm actually delving into prayer, man, is that it can lead to some sort of conclusion. Now, here's the thing. If I find out that it's not Oswald, but it's somebody else, right? I'm telling you here in front of everybody. And I will wind prayer man research down right there, right then. Okay? But I'm willing to place that back because I know it's Oswald. The fact is, is that if you prove, if you get a good scan of that film, because that's what everybody wants, because all the testimony and all the newspaper articles and so forth in the world ain't gonna, is not going to convince everybody that that's Oswald out there. Because to us, the picture is the cherry on top, right? Right. You see, the, the, the so-called enemy, the fake C-tiers and the lone nutters and so forth, they start at the photograph, whereas the photograph or the film, better yet, is the end bit of all the testimony, of all the lying. Yeah, because practically every Texas school book depository employee lied through their teeth. Right? I think the only one that didn't lie was Victoria Adams. And, um, you know, and they inserted... Uh, bits of testimony in her testimony as such and made it look like it was her testimony where she um when you read barry Ernest's book she clearly states i never said that right and she points it out really simply because i i i end the sentence with sir yes sir no sir and there's a whole segment in there regarding that and there's not once the word sir is being used as such and that was quite a good indicator um so if you can prove that Oswald is standing on those steps and um, prove he's innocent of shooting JFK, don't get me wrong, I think he's involved because of his intelligence connections. He knew about it. He knew what was going to happen. His body posture tells me that as well. Standing in that corner, in the shadow, completely uninvolved, compared to Lovelady, who leans, who actually starts behind uh, the African-American and going all the way up the steps and leaning over to look down Elm Street and basically also with Shelley leaves the steps almost immediately after the shooting if you can show that Oswald is innocent of shooting JFK it's still an open murder case right it's right. been closed so if you show that then they have to reopen the murder case because they have to find out who shot JFK well my god that would be such an avalanche for on on every department as such and that would create such an outcry more of an outcry than the Jolly, the Oliver Stone movie could actually do unless of course the people aren't interested anymore i don't know but i think the people are i mean the movie that i've done for some reason every day there's between 3 and 400 people that click to the link towards that movie and watch it and i have no idea why and how but um, uh, it was roughly, I was, for the first six weeks, no, eight or ten weeks, I was doing about 100 a day, 80 to 100 a day. And then all of a sudden, from, uh, I think, end of Feb, early March, it just went to three to 400. And it's been going since. I think I'm close to 27,000 views so far, which I'm really grateful for. So those that have watched, really thank you from the bottom of my heart for watching this. Um, so when you... So from that perspective, compare that to Sinky, where it just basically keeps nattering on about 
fake pictures and they never point the fakery out they never point masking out as such you know well, i mean i know only picture, a few yeah. instances where i believe that the that the material has been faked one of the autopsy pictures is definitely faked it's the one where they hold him up and they show the back wound there's a massive mask in the back of the head uh, that picture is at the rokc before and you just have to go in the photo section and uh, scroll down and there's a photograph and you can clearly see the the, the, the jagged lines of, of 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 a mask as such plus um, medical photographs are supposed to show the maximum amount of detail of everything and yeah. yet there's a massive black patch on the back of the head of uh, jfk as such that is definitely uh, uh, a masking job and it's definitely a fakery there's there's no no shadow of a doubt actually that that's uh, been messed with um then i believe as well that the zapruder film had a paint job on the back of the head as well uh, that's something i've uh, i've been working on over the last year or so as well on the side and there's a few bits there that just don't add up as a photographer i've been a photographer since the early 80s since 81 and uh, this is uh, one element that just doesn't add up and the funny thing is is that if you compare that with a mormon polaroid and although people say well the mormon polaroid came really really quickly online uh, on the uh, on on the air and i said yeah but that doesn't mean anything because um the newspaper print is really uh, uh really coarse yeah, um, the detail, the lack of detail as such. And on top of that, uh, painting slightly over a, a small part of, uh, of, of the back of the head, uh, making that darker can be done in an instant. It can be done in 60 seconds with, uh, with black ink as such. I've done researching, retouching myself. So uh, on, 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 on Polaroids, on, on prints, on bromide prints, on glossy prints, I know all about it. So it's really quickly done. The problem is, is that if you look at the angle from where Zapruder was shooting and the angle from where Mormon was shooting, the so-called shadow is in two different places. And that, that's impossible when you only have one light source, which is the sun. So it just doesn't add up. But anyway, that's completely besides the point. Sinker doesn't take you somewhere where you can go, all right, you know what? This amounts to something. And the thing is also his blog is just every day <laughs> over and over and over and over. And, you know, Robin Unger, for instance, takes him to task. And there's a couple other guys here on Facebook as well. They just po post his stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, our well, opinion at ROKC is that he, he just talks to himself. Yeah. Just like Albert Doyle, he talks to himself as well. Yeah. He's a, well, here, he's, well, the biggest JFK troll that you've got. Uh, and he just, they just talk to themselves. Nobody, nobody cares what they have to say. No, but here's the ridiculous part. Because behind, supposedly behind the scenes now, Ralph says that he's been talking to the National Enquirer magazine, and they're very much interested in his research uh, of Rafael Cruz on Main Street and, and his photo analysis. And apparently, they're going to be publishing uh, his his work on that in in, a, in an upcoming uh, issue. As well as they're very interested in his work on, of course, Oswald in the Doorway, which they're going to be featuring in their tabloid magazine as well. So millions and millions and millions of trashy people around the world who read these magazines <laughs> are going to be getting exposed to the great work of the Oswald okay. Innocence Campaign. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Yes. Um, but you know what? If the National Enquirer wants to put that piece forward, then they should really simply 
also read um, Lovelady's testimony of that the FBI came around with a table-sized print that same evening of the assassination with a print that was 30 by 40 big, right? Huge print. And he just went, that's me. And when the FBI agents were just relieved and just said, like, all right, cool. You know, we're relieved because one guy at the office said, like, that's Oswald on the stairs. But that's not and sensational this is also the tabloid news, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this is also the reason why we can't get hold of the films at NBC. That's why. Because they know. They know. Because if they knew that it was somebody else, they would have given the films out and said, yes, Kennedy and blah, blah, blah. This is only going to make it worse. Well, that too, yeah. But uh, you know what? Um, it's tabloid. So, yep. And so is Ralph And they've got nothing to back it up with. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? And that, folks, yeah. is your... Ridiculousness of the week. <laughs> okay, Bart. I think it's about time that we uh, give everybody the pleasure of the Malcolm Blunt interview. Is yes. that cool with you? Yes, definitely. So everybody hang in there, and uh, we'll be back afterwards. Enjoy the interview. Can we just spend 60 seconds on your career of basically telling us all what you've done in a nutshell regarding research? Yeah, research I started in uh, 90... Serious research I started in 94... Um, 95, I met John Armstrong and did work with him on the Harvey and Lee book for about five years. The time I worked on it, was it was not called Harvey and Lee. Uh, what was it called? It wasn't called anything. No. It was just called an Oswald project, I guess. Uh, and I was, I was much happier with that. I was much happier that... Uh, we would try and get some sense into uh, the, the biograph- biography of uh, Oswald um, by going through FBI files and CIA files and whatever was available and, and doing interviews as well. We did interviews, quite a few interviews. And um, come 2000... Uh, John seemed to sort of go on to this Harvey and Lee tack, which I didn't particularly like at the time. So we had a slight disagreement. He fell, fell out for a year, but then you know, got back to being friends again after a year. Uh, and then I went um, really in a separate direction. I went more towards uh, CIA research. Which, which, which interested me more than anything else. And I've, I've been doing that ever since, really. So I've been doing that for maybe 12 years, 13 years. Yeah. So you go to NARA. You've been there a lot. A lot, yeah. Spent uh, six, uh, six months sessions there sometimes. So. Okay. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about a few, uh, few matters. I mean, if anybody wants to talk about NARA as well, obviously. You know, yeah. You can help out there. Yeah. Uh, for those that don't know, NARA is the National Archives in Washington, where all the goods are supposedly supposedly, <laughs> supposedly are supposed to be. So, um, let's just talk about a few things uh, with Oswald and regards his 
Dallas Police Department interrogation as per the Fritz and the bookout notes, and where, he's, where he basically said that he didn't own a rifle, uh, did not purchase the gun from Seaport Traders, did not shoot anyone out with out front with Bill Shelley and so forth. Um, do you believe Oswald's answers? As, yes, I do. Yeah? Yeah. I don't believe he shot anybody that day. You know, I think the guy was entirely innocent of that. You know, uh, I think he was uh, intelligence-connected, for sure. Um, so that's my opinion on that. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, a bit before that, we've got the uh, Carlos Bringer affair. What was that really about? Uh, that looks like a CIA production, you know, uh, to draw attention to uh, the fact, uh, well, draw attention to Oswald and uh, his connections to uh, the FPCC. Whether that was more than the FPCC, whether it was the actual uh, precursor to uh, setting him up for Dallas, I don't know. But there was definitely, uh, it was definitely a, a complete setup, and and Bringer was part of that. And Bringer is a very difficult character to get to know, you know, to understand. I think. Uh, Moses, because he he tends to duck and dive a lot. I mean, uh, and you tend to you tend to get the impression that. He wasn't connected to the to the Central Intelligence Agency. He was connected to the FBI, you know. Um, but I think there were there, there, there were indicators around that he was perhaps more connected to the agency. When you look at the summer of '63, it gets quite interesting because uh, Jeff Moore has done the Joanita stuff. And we know that uh, Joe Anidis, George Joe Anidis, who was a very senior CIA officer, was uh, he had a house in New Orleans. He was certainly in New Orleans. Another heavy hitter in the CIA Cuban operation group was um, Bill Kent, William Kent, and he was there in the summer of '63. And I've just learned that an even heavier guy from the agency was down in uh, New Orleans in the summer of 63, yeah. called Carl Tretton. And Carl was down there. So you had, you had this nexus of heavy-duty CIA people coincidentally in New Orleans at the same time as uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was down there. I know that Joe Anidis has uh, been said that he basically was like the paymaster for the DRE. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's the connection between Oswald's stay in Russia and the Gary Powers U2 incident? Oh, God, that's a long way. Well, you? we've got the time. <laughs> well, I learned through uh, looking at uh, CIA handbooks and regulations and dissemination processes that when Oswald defected, the information was not handled in the in a normal way. It gets back to Larry Hancock's anomalies yesterday because it's it seems that uh, the security office pre before the before the defection asked for a single a single channel dissemination 
on Oswald information. In other words, ahead of time, before Oswald defected, they asked for information. Any information that came in on Oswald was to go only to the security office and nowhere else. It wasn't. It, it never made it to the Soviet Russia division. It only ever on defection, all those early documents went to the uh, security office. One particular bit, which was the security research staff. The security research staff was joined at the hip with Angleton CI SIG. They, they were just like, you know, two sides of the same coin. So I tried to figure out why, why, that, why that took place. And the only thing I could work out was the, the, the dis dissemination to the security officer, the security research staff and Angleton's group was done as a, a mole hunting exercise. That's the only, because there was a, when I say it was a single channel di uh, dissemination, it did go one other place in CIA, went to uh, the recording integration division indexing, which is like a passive location. In other words, once it reaches there, it doesn't go anywhere. But if you're an agency you're, you work for the agency and you want to look for um, uh, an identity, for a name, you want to run a trace, you, you fill up a form which is a, a Form 362. And then on that Form 362 you have to leave your name, your extension number, date, whatever it is. So if anybody came looking in RID indexing, which is passive, <coughs> the information stays there, Angleton and the guy at SRS, who was Bruce Soley, probably, um, would have red flagged RID indexing. So if you go and look at RID, in, RID indexing and you're uh, looking for a, someone that uh, you think might be a mole, it's there because that person has requested Oswald information. So there you go, there you have it. So he, Oswald would have been loaded up, I think, with the only thing I could think of the information worth having would be the U2 information based on the fact that he was in Aitsugi. Or they may, he may never have been anywhere near uh, you know, knowing anything about the U2. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because of the political embarrassment the Soviets were feeling. I mean, they were, they were besides them beside themselves, and they were, you know, furious with the overflights. It was a huge political embarrassment coming down from the Politburo, you know. Uh, and I have many, many, many Russian protests to America on the U-2 overflights, copies of those. In, in addition, I have Gary Power's debriefing as well, one of, one of his debriefings. Malcolm, do you think how an even bigger question. I've, you know, I've looked, I've looked at that. I've looked at that. Uh, Gary said, Gary Jr. says not. He just, he, you know, he says, you know, he says something. I mean, I've debated with Gary on this. Well, Dulles, Dulles so testified. He said it, well, no, he didn't. I'll get that wrong. 
He testified that there was a flame out. That was it. En engine malfunction. That's what he testified to. In other words, it wasn't hit by a, you know, a drunk, drunk missile guys. Spoderask. Wasn't the pilot supposed to kill themselves? Yeah, they were supposed to have a you know, sign yeah, sign-up. Yeah. The pilot didn't do that. No, it didn't do no. that. No. Fletcher probably thinks that, um, that that's a, a, a flare-out and... Um, well, he's, he, said, he said it was a sabotage. Sabotage, yeah. yeah. That's right. For the Paris Peace Conference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I don't know. You, 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 can spec, you can speculate every way to Sunday on this. But, but I mean, it is, it, it is an eerie co coincidence, isn't it? You know, the peace conference in Paris was going on. You know, to really screw that up. I mean, they shouldn't have been flying in operation on May Day. But proving it is another thing. Yeah. 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 Oh, regarding proof. Was Oswald ever in Mexico? And if so, what was he trying to achieve? <laughs> you know, back in 98, uh, I had a long discussion with John Newman at the archives. <clears throat> and um, I said to him, uh, well, he said to me, uh, what are you doing about Mexico City? I said, I'm doing nothing about Mexico City. And uh, he said, why is that? I said, uh, I said, well, it's a swamp. It's a total swamp. And he looked at me and he said, well, it's a swamp that you have to get into, as he said to me. So, but I've, I've, always tried to, I've always tried to avoid it. You know, I have a lot of Mexico City files. And periodically, I, people ask me about things and I break into those files. And uh, I think Jeff Morley was the last person I broke into for. But, you know, I, sure, I copied the stuff and the new stuff that came out and kept up to date with it. But I'm not really. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's interesting that all the uh, the early reports seem to talk about Oswald driving. You know, Oswald in a car, Oswald driving. You know, really? into uh, Mexico City, into into Mexico. You know, a lot of those are early reports. The Alvarado stuff is always a, a very strange thing as well. Yeah. There's just so many, so many weird things in the Mexico City story. Uh, understand, understanding, making sense of it, I think, is very difficult. Maybe that's how it's supposed to be. So the jury's still out there. Yeah, sure. I mean, there may be there may be more to come. There may be more to come. I think there's a, you know, quite a bit of uh, still classified material on Mexico City. As a, I mean, there's a great deal of classified material. The stuff I think would be a, a benefit come 2017 would be security classified testimony, for sure. Because that's uh, they've they're, they've really dug their heels in on that. Uh, specifically. Uh, the testimony of um, Bruce Soley and the testimony of uh, Robert Gambino. Uh, interestingly, both of these guys are security office guys. Gambino 
I have his notes, his re the researcher's notes for Gambino, and that's where I was able to, to stick together how the dissemination process worked, because he gave it up. And the, and the notes, we have about five pages of notes, uh, probably well over a hundred pages of testimony. So there's a lot to come from um, the security classified testimony files. Interestingly, some things have been withdrawn. Uh, the last time I was there, which was last month, it was last month, it was mine. Um, I noticed that uh, there's a document, there's a record integration division guy called Larson, who, uh, whose testimony is just fantastic. It's almost 200 pages. Uh, and as, as a sort of like uh, an intro into understanding how CIA moves its paper around, it's just absolutely fascinating. And uh, that stuff, um, that testimony was uh, not in the files. Uh, and it said, uh, it, there was a, a pull slip and it said, uh, uh, withdrawn by uh, another agency, which I thought was pretty strange. Yeah. So you've got some things you, you, that were there that aren't there, you know, and then you've got the stuff come in. The security classified testimony that there's going to be two boxes, two big grey file boxes, and I think those are going to be, you know, I would get the I would get the magnifying glasses on those. In addition, another security office guy called John Dempsey. His uh, church committee testimony has been de denied in full forever, and that's supposed to be released next year. That's 186 pages. So. Is there anything else in that pile? Of, because I've seen the list, and it's pretty big, actually. Of oh, it's masses, masses and masses and masses of stuff. <coughs> I mean, uh, the, uh, the difficult areas for the agency are going to be cover and corporations, proprietaries, banks, financial... Uh, the stuff where the tentacle goes, tentacles go. I, I mean, uh, that's, that's a difficult area for them. For them to see that out in the open. Yeah, I mean, you can see why. I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at um, the Robert Kennedy assassination, I mean, I found a document which was uh, where they were the cover group, the the central cover, no, not central cover group, the commercial cover group, which is part of CIA, uh, where they place people in businesses, corporations, companies. Um, they, the, the House Select Committee had given them a name. They'd run a name, and the name was uh, Joe Campisi. So they ran it through the system. They ran it right through CIA. And uh, lo and behold, uh, um, the commercial cover group pop up the name Joseph Campisi. But it, it, was, it wasn't Joseph Campisi, the mafia guy. It was a Joe Campisi that was uh, uh, CEO of uh, Belova Watch. And what you discover from that document is Belova Watch is a cover company for the CIA. Well, if you think back to the Ambassador Hotel and Bobby Kennedy, whose convention was at the Ambassador Hotel? Belova Watch. <laughs> I mean, this is where the tentacles go. I mean, you can, like, you can drive yourself nuts. Thinking, you know, if you're a 
a, a diehard conspiracy theorist, you could think, well, you know. Bobby Kennedy gets shot down, and there's a CIA cover company work. He got their convention that night, you know. But Overwatch. Yeah, I remember the documentary made by uh, Shane O'Sullivan where this whole thing basically, where he thought... Well, he, he got shot down. He got shot down because, you know, they said, oh, well, you know, it's uh, these two guys were working for Below the Watch. Well, yeah. But who are Below the Watch? They're a, they're, friendly, they're a friendly corporation, you know. You can, you can drop people into it. I'm not saying they did, but maybe they did. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are your thoughts as to whether Angleton was running a, between quotation marks, a barrier metal operation using Oswald that was used by the plotters to assist the cover-up as proposed by Peter Dale Scott? It's a possibility. You know, I wouldn't, you know, second-guessing Angleton or his motives or what he was doing. I mean, it's really, I think Angleton is a really difficult area. I think he was he was absolutely involved in the uh, in the Oswald defection for sure, because you could see that with the way the documents moved, they didn't go where they were supposed to go. They went to his shop and they went to uh, the security research staff. So, you know, so yeah. Um, it's to, uh, Peter's probably right on that, I would say. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Now, you've been to Nara quite a lot. You practically lived there. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, um, <laughs> so, what's the closest thing you've ever seen to a smoking gun in the existing records? Well, yeah. Uh, what fell through a, the a, cracks? A, 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 well, no, yeah, but I mean, the good stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, the stuff that, you know, you dream of getting. I got too early. I was still, you know, as green as cabbage. And one day I got the uh, the Fair Play for Cuba committee files unredacted, totally unredacted. I had them for three days, then I let them go. And then I realized afterwards what I'd actually had in my hands, you know. You had all sorts of, um, you know, all the informants' names, everything, you know, the whole thing. I, I, I must admit, even then I did think it was peculiar. I couldn't see any redactions in the in the documents, in the files. But it just goes to show, you know, that even organizations like NARA can make mistakes. Mm. You know? well, that's what it actually is, a human error, just like the Master Chief documents. Yeah, it, was a, it was a, a new person into the archives that was, I was dealing with. They'd only just arrived there, and they just went to the wrong area. They went to the classified area, Pulled out a classified car, which was the, the whole of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee FBI files. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty-four boxes. But you didn't copy it. I copied some of it, yeah, because you know I hate to say it, but you know one of our, one of our researchers' names was on in in there in one of the documents as an informant. And, uh, not. Our British researchers, I'm talking about American researchers. So I found that at that time I found that interesting. I mean, it was something that you one always suspects that the, the research community would be 
penetrated by all sorts of people. You know. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush. Did he have any uh, CIA associations in '63? That's another. That's a, that's a tricky question, isn't it? George Bush looks like he was uh, he was working for the agency, but trying to get proof on that is very difficult. You know, um, the Assassination Records Review Board put that request in to CIA, and uh, they did their searches. Uh, there's a there's a a part of CIA which is called the AARC, which is the Agency Archive Record Center, which is in Alexandria. And um, they went through everything. Allegedly, they went through everything there, and they couldn't find anything uh, to say that uh, George Bush uh, was employed before 1976, I think, when he became DCI. But, but, they did find what they call a job number, a job number 80 something or other. Every, everything, the, all their job numbers begin with 80, so it was job number 80, and um, that file could not be located. <laughs> so, what a coincidence. What a coincidence that is. Another coincidence. <laughs> and a long pile, a big pile yeah, of yeah, coincidences right, yeah, yeah, just yeah, to yeah. add on. Um, NARA itself, what uh, what do you recommend for aspiring researchers? Uh, the AARB files, uh, you know, to get some sort of like sense of where to go, because they looked at everything. They looked at all the the you know the previous com committees, the Warren Commission, the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, uh, Edwards, HSCA, everything. They looked. They looked at everything. And um, they have all the all the notes there. The the best files are the the most productive files I've found. I think were he was a guy that was seconded from uh, Justice Department of Justice, and that was Ron Haran. And he w he went through. He was meticulous. He went through all these uh, committees, and uh, particularly if you want to get into the Church Committee stuff, which is chaotic. And there's a lot of stuff which has gone missing there. You know, we talk about missing stuff. I mean, if we had that stuff, it's just like the Holy Grail. I mean, it's just so much stuff missing from there. Um, you know, key bits of testimony, it's just gone. They can't find it, they can't locate it. All the, all the customs and INS interviews are all gone, all missing. The only... The only bits you can find are the, the footnotes in the draft reports where they've talked to customs officers and INS officers, and they, they quote page, different pages and the extracts. But coincidentally, all that <coughs> stuff is gone. Can't find any of it. None of it at all. So, and that ties into 63 again, of course, because if you think about the way that 
CIA used uh, INS people and customs people. They were used as cutouts, often used as cutouts, and they were co-opted. Cesar Diaz Dado down in the Keys in Florida, he was a co-opted customs guy, you know, who lied through his teeth to the HSCA and should have been put in jail for perjury. And this also ties in with the story you told uh, a couple of years ago at the ARC about the uh, Marine uh, Oswald's Marine Bodies records as well sure, that, yeah, that were yeah, hidden away. Yeah. And uh, you went there how many times, actually? Uh, you went there quite a few well, times. I, was, I, mean, I mean, I was lucky in a sense, <coughs> and unlucky with the result. But, I mean, uh, I met Pete Bagley, the, the former chief of Soviet Russia counterintelligence, and Pete phoned up... Uh, the former editor of Reader's Digest, Fulton Arsler, and got me access because everybody had been denied access to the to box three, which was the the interviews with probably about a hundred Marines. Like the great big cardboard box, which is like this, you know? and uh, that um, you know, when I first tried to, uh, first tried to look at the, that box. Uh, I called up the Georgetown Library uh, guy, Scott Taylor, and Scott said, oh yeah, come on over here, uh, you know, so fine, I go over. And then when I got there, he said, uh, no, you can't see it, you know, I requested box three. I said, well, I've come all this way, can you not do anything? And of course he phoned, he called Fulton Arsler up, and Arsler said, no, no way. So it was many years later that, you know, I, through this friendship with Pete Bagley, I managed to get Pete phoned up hours later. And, and then there was, as soon as he would, interceded, there was no problem. I could get to see it. So, but when it came out and we undid the box, which was all sealed up and it was as dusty as hell, uh, you could see straight away the more than half the box was it was empty the stuff had, the stuff had gone there were there were no marine corps interviews whatsoever you know if there's no problem with with oswald in his biography and his identity you know that shouldn't happen yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. it proves actually the opposite this yeah. shows the opposite yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh the only thing in that box was that was there was there were uh, you know the Reader's Digest researchers for Epstein had gone to uh, Belgium and uh, they tracked various you know, it was it was stuff to do with Demorenshield there was a bit of stuff in there to do with Demorenshield in that box but yeah I mean that seems to me you know every every time you get to somewhere which is interesting and you'd like to see. You like to see the stuff. It ain't there. <laughs> it's gone. So you now talk about two instances, but are there more instances instances like that? Oh, I'm trying, trying to recall. Yeah, I mean, the custom stuff was, was one instance. Uh, I don't know. You'd have to give me time to think about it. Yeah, there are other instances. But yeah. Okay. Um, Greg Parker wrote a, an article... We got uh, called Anatomy of a Fake Defection.
and uh, everybody was uh, forwarded that via email as such. And it was about uh, 10 pages. Um, and of course, especially uh, the uh, the program called Redskin. I'm saying uh, the wrong was it red? Well, there's lots of reds. Yeah, of red. There's Redskin, Red Sox, Red Cap. Yeah, you name it. Yeah. What can you tell us about this? Uh, well, that was run through a uh, component of CIA called SR10, and um, <coughs> SR10 was uh, so. Just trying to think of the dates. In 1959, the director of uh, the chief of uh, SR10 was uh, Paul Garbler, who's an interesting character. And then I think in '60 it was Alexander Sokolov, and then a guy called David Chapchalzi uh, took over in '61, and he was there for a number of years. SR10. Utilized uh, students, tourists, people, mainly students, I suppose, uh, to go into uh, the Soviet Union and gather human intelligence, and uh, and they were, I can't say they were trained, but they were, you know, heavily briefed, and. Uh, Each one was uh, cleared at a quite a high level, right through to uh, up to uh, uh, Richard Helms. We would have to sign off on each one of those. But what interests me was that there were there were more levels. I don't think Greg's got to this. There were more levels of uh, the Redskin program, besides the besides the students. Um, there, there were a series of. Uh, got your pen and paper. Yeah. There were a series of uh, contract agents, and these were called the AE Fairways. And then it even looks as though there were uh, uh, CIA staff officers used, staff people used, which uh, quite surprised me. Uh, there was a guy in 64 called, and he may still be alive, and you need to write his name down, called Warren Harshman. And... Uh, Worked in uh, worked in SR six, but for some reason he was utilised in 1960 uh, as a tour guide by the agency. He went into and he, he was travelling to Minsk. So Harshman was a was a red skinner. So he may still be around. He possibly maybe you could talk to the some, somebody could talk to the guy. Uh, Let me just uh, Red Sox. Red Sox was a was a, a program which started very early on. Yeah. Or do you want to stick on? A I've got here a, a memo ma memorandum by Richard Bissell, um, issued in 1959 on the second of second of September. Yeah. Titled Operations Against Soviet Targets. The operations listed were Red Cap, Red Sox, and Red Skin. Red Cop. Red Cap and Red Sox were conceived during Frank Wisen's watch as head of the, the Directorate of Plans. Their inclusion in the Bissell memo is most interesting in that most of those programs had been aimed solely at Soviet satellites and were derived out of the failing Volunteer Freedom Corps. 
immigrants from Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and Romania were trained at a base just outside Munich with the aim of infiltrating them into the satellites at the optimum moment to foment or aid national uprisings against, against Soviet rule. The failed 1956 uprising in Hungary caused these operations to be deep-sixed, along with the Eisenhower policy of rollback. But the National Security Council, the NSC resolution, which gave birth to them, NSC 143-2, was not rescinded until late December 1960. The Bissell memo opens by stating, the effort of clandestine services against the Soviets will be increased and expanded. This demands a coordinated clandestine attack by all operating elements of the CS, which have operational opportunities. <laughs> Typical CIA speak. Yeah. No. Well, that's actually very clear. Because, I mean, if you, you go into the handbooks, it's arcane. <laughs> so Red Sox, yeah, Red Sox was, uh, I thought it was maybe just even a little bit earlier. Um Conceived maybe by Wisner, but it was talked about much earlier, uh, uh, even an earlier date, uh, because uh, Arnold Silver was a very fine counterintelligence staff guy, uh, staff officer, and he uh, he wrote a report on on the projected uh, Red Sox program, in which he completely warned against doing it because uh, the Soviet internal controls were so complete, it was bound to be a doomed enterprise. You could never do it. And, and that's exactly what they found. All these people went into the Soviet Union in uh, black, what they called black, and they were all picked up. They were all picked up. Either, either they killed or captured. All right, then there's uh, Russell Langell. Langell was a CIA officer working on the cover of embassy security. He was arrested by the Soviets after being caught with notes obtained from an inside agent he had been running. Langell was interviewed at CIA headquarters by two staff counsel of the HSCA. Notes of that interview taken down by Robert Gensman include the following illuminating comments. Langell joined the CIA in 1950 and worked mainly in SR9 of the so Soviet Russian division. The second, in November 1955, he resigned from the agency on the pretext that he was disgruntled with his assignments. Yep, yep. His CIA file would have reflected his termin this termination of employment. Yep. The only document to the contrary would have been a memorandum from the Director of Central Intelligence stating that Langell would retain all rights when he returned to the CIA. And thirdly, in March of 56, he started to work on the cover of the State Department as a security officer. After a stint at the Vienna Embassy, he commenced at the Moscow Embassy in, embassy in December 57. Outside the embassy were Jean Lieberman and one other whose name was redacted. Additionally, there were three or four students who handled orientation projects. And then it says in his article, basically, by Greg, it says, I don't know for certain what meaning the CIA gives to the word orientation, but the ordinary meaning of the word suggests getting people used to new surroundings, customs, etc., indicating the role maybe have included briefing others yeah, on their a missions. A heavy briefing for the task ahead, I would say. Yeah. A heavy briefing. The question is, was Edward Keenan one of those students, and if so, was he perhaps in Snyder's office that day in order to brief Oswald on such matters? 
Well, Snyder is Snyder's a case as well. I mean, I must admit, Keenan went right by me. It wasn't until um, I think uh, somebody pointed out this uh, the fact that it was in John Newman's book. I'd missed it. It had gone right by me. But um, I know Keenan uh, figures in uh, the William Martin NSA defector file. I've seen references to Keenan in there. Although the references are um, that he didn't actually, the, the ones that I've seen, that he didn't actually meet Martin. And I'm sure I've seen somewhere that Greg seems to think that he did meet Martin, is that correct? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's either, you know, it could be the CIA lying into itself, who knows. But <laughs> the, that wouldn't be a first either. Yeah, that wouldn't be a first time. But um, the, 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 one of the cables I saw was uh, it said that Keenan uh, saw Martin. In the in the company of and I always get the, the lady's name wrong, Tatiana Chicheksnika. Chis, you know, it's a, one of these weird sort of Soviet names. Mm. <laughs> so, in other words, that um, they were saying that he never actually uh, met with Martin. Okay, and then uh, with regard to the Bissell memo, actually two days later, uh, Oswald was transferred to the H&H squadron, and he applied for his passport that same day. And uh, that was just two days after Bissell issued his memo advising of the expansion of Soviet operations, yeah, which grew out of NSC 1434-2. On January the 4th, 1961, Oswald expressed his thoughts of returning to the United States, and on February 13, 61, he notified the U.S. Embassy of his wish. Of his wish, the change of heart about staying was within a mere week or so of the NSC 143/2 being countermanded, with the first steps toward actual repatriation only a few more weeks after that. That the HSCA could look into the possibility of Oswald having been an agent sent to the Soviet Union by the SR division of the Directorate of Plans and decide that there was nothing to indicate that this has been the case is worrisome. His finding seems to have been based primarily on the testimony of CIA officers and its own extremely narrow readings of documents. It is to be hoped that any future investigation will not, so, will not be so easily thrown off by smug reassurances nor willfully ignore the full significance of the document it accesses. Well, the people that had their hands on Oswald, in my opinion, were, were Angleton and his group and Soli and his group, uh, you know. They, they they asked for the, uh, the the documents on Oswald as they came in. They must have asked those pre-defection. So they were the people with their hands on it. They had pre-knowledge, but you have to try and work out what was up, what 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 what, what was their intent? What were they going to use Oswald for? It's no question in my mind that. Uh, you know, you can't. You know, you you can't make a major change in dissemination. There has to be a good reason. Okay. Does anyone have any questions? <laughs> Next year is a very 
investigate the released documents from JFK as a result of the JFK Act. Do you have any, are you optimistic about what's going to come out or do you just think it's going to be just another, because they have an option, they've got a I, I'm optimistic, but I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty certain that CIA are going to uh, appeal to the president, whoever that president is. Bit of luck, it might be Trump. Just more, that's another follow-up question. Do you think, in my opinion, I could be wrong, but my opinion, President Clinton is going to be more amiable to opening this thing up? Neither do I. I haven't got too much confidence in the Clintons. So, you're not going to get leadership, you're not going to get any, anybody in, in the leadership authority to say, it's about time we talk this thing out. Can you ever see that happening? Can you ever see the, the political climate occurring where that's going to happen? I think you would, you would get it if Sanders was elected. Some follow-on too. I don't know if I can say that. We've got time. For yeah, go on. The follow-on with you know what Greg said. They weren't really questions. They're more like comments. But one thing was uh, the, where we we're going to get more information. I think in 2017 is the IRC uh, and uh, Leo Chern, uh, who was whose pseudonym was uh, he was a CIA asset and his pseudonym was Bruce Mastrocola. Uh, there's a lot more material to come out of, out of the IRC, which I'm sure we're going to find interesting. Uh, 
Um, and the other thing was when he talked about ferry and, and you know the, the, the recruitment of Oswald recruitment for the, of Oswald. during the CIP. That, that struck a chord with me because um, when I met Fred Reeves, that was the guy that did the post-defection investigation of Oswald in '59. You know, the one that never happened. But Fred Reeves did that investigation, and um, I met him at the National Archives when he was searching for his own records without success. Uh, and we kept in touch afterwards. We, we uh, corresponded and often phoned each other. And the one thing that struck me was he always wanted information on David Ferry and the New Orleans angle, and the, and the CAP. Although he was very close-mouthed about the subject of his own investigation, you know. The only thing I could ever get out of him was a lot of information came in from Japan. An enormous amount of information on Oswald came from Japan. Not so much within the US, the mainland US, but from Japan, which I thought... That was quite interesting. But then his in, this, this interest in, uh, in Oswald and the CP, which went on for weeks, months, you know, over a year, looking at anything I could get on David Ferry. I, I, that sort of like touched a nerve. I mean, was part of his investigation or did, did, did that investigation touch on the CAP? Why would he be so interested in that bit? Just that bit. Nothing else. Just that bit. Isn't that curious? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. You know. All right. And the other thing was the, the, was the Unitarian Church. You know, there, there are um, more records to come on a Unitarian Church. We're just, we, we, talk, we were in the security office files, and I think they're, um, they're still classified. So there's obviously a relationship between CIA and the Unitarian Church. I know that also from the fact that there are open, uh, open uh, documents which not related to the Kennedy assassination. It's the Poor People's March. But they, they've clearly got uh, assets. CIA have got assets inside the Unitarian Church because they're monitor monitoring the uh, Poor People's March going into uh, D.C. in whatever year that was, 66, 67? Yeah. 65? Uh, You're better on it than I am. You're homegrown. <laughs> All right. On that note, is there any other questions left? Do you think there's a smoking gun that's going to give us... Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a good word. Um, I, I, I think researchers and good researchers are going to are, are, are going to find new stuff, uh, and they're going to find stuff which is significant. Um, but the media won't take a, a blind bit of notice. I don't think, unfortunately, they're going to be looking for something. It's like. You know, that isn't there. You know, that's a problem. Yeah. 
we, you know, we, we make progress as researchers, but it's, it's too controlled of an environment, particularly the U.S. media. Can't get, can't get beyond that. Okay. But, uh, you know, uh, <coughs> I spoke to um, a senior person in the historical, CIA's historical review group. Coincidentally, got transferred after she spoke to me. Another coincidence. <laughs> Another coincidence. <laughs> and uh, and uh, she said, um, she said to me, the some of the some of the stuff that's there that's supposed to be released in 2017 should never be released. She said. And, and then there was a pause, and then it was, and we, and we, you can be sure that we will be appealing to the president. Uh, not just on one document, on many documents. So it's going to be, I suppose that will be the news story. See, uh, what's, what's the CIA hiding this time? You know, they're going to be appealing, and people can say, well, you know. Thanks very much. Okay. All right, everybody, that was the Malcolm Blunt interview, some fascinating stuff about CIA and, and ties to Oswald and the defection program and, and just all kinds of good stuff in there. And uh, thank you so much, Bart, for, for giving that to the listeners. You're most welcome. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, and I would also implore everybody out there who is in England or the UK to think about joining up with Dealey Plaza UK if you're interested in the case. You know, it sounds like a good time and good people and good research being done over there. So definitely check it out. And I'm going to put up links to a lot of the stuff over on the blog. I'm going to embed some some videos from the conference that, that, that Bart's got over there. And, uh, of course, link you back up to the Prairie Man site where everybody can go check out Bart's excellent work. And uh, be on the lookout for the new Prayer Man movie coming uh, soon. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I'll, let, I'll let everybody know again when you drop it. So just let me know. And uh, thank you so much, Bart, for coming on the show again. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So everybody head over to TLGpodcast.com for more. That's it. This some bitch is in the can. Beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.